Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Oh yeah, tell you something, I think you understand. Then I see there's something, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. Oh please, say to me. I think it must be immediately apparent to my listeners that this is not going to be a normal episode of Counter Melody. This is, in fact, my long-planned April Fool's episode, and in spite of the hardship that everyone in the world is going through right now, I decided that we could all use a very good laugh and an exposure to perhaps a parallel universe of bel canto. So that's what today is. I've had a long fascination with the joys of bad singing. I planned on writing either an article and or a book. This must have been, well, almost 15 years ago. Uh, It never happened. I never even wrote the article. But I am coming to this topic belatedly and with the assistance of several others who also love this sort of material. So I'm going to share with you my list of the joys of bad singing. This is what I compiled for the never written article, rather than to inundate you with very long extended sections, because some of you may not have the tolerance that I do for this sort of material. But we are going to cover a range of genres as well, so it won't be just opera singing, but I will save the very best of the opera singers for you. For me, the three greatest opera singers in this regard are Olive Middleton, Marie Lynn, and Natalia de Andrade. There are several others that you will not hear on this podcast. Florence Foster Jenkins is one of them. She lays a goose egg for me. I mean, yes, I laugh, but, you know, there's something cruel about the laughter. And my whole point in this podcast episode is that I find this Not simply funny. Of course it's funny. That's the obvious thing. Let me read my list of the joys of bad singing. 
One, the humorous. It's just funny. Two, the grotesquerie. These people come from the other side of midnight. Three, pitch, rhythm, and phrasing. Three, pitch, rhythm, and phrasing abnormalities and eccentricities. And here I must also add diction and pronunciation, as we will hear with certain <laughs> examples that are forthcoming. Four, the shocking, hearing familiar music massacred. Five, the element of surprise. What will they come up with next? Six, imagining how they must look when they sing. And sometimes we do have this supplemented with visual material. I will provide links on the show notes page if there are appropriate visuals accompanying. Seven, hearing the human voice make sounds one never before imagined. Eight, feeling of superiority and relief. It's not me up there. This person tops even the worst scenario I can conjure up of me making a fool of myself. Nine, their obliviousness, the sound of not caring about what anybody else thinks. Ten, their fearlessness, their devil-may-care attitude. Eleven, a certain generosity of spirit. Twelve, the flights of fancy that these singers take, their expressive creative flourishes. For me, that's a very important one. Thirteen, the feeling of entering into the performer's secret world. Fourteen, the musical equivalent of the idiot savant. The feeling that this fool may be tapping into some place known only to themselves. The feeling of having accidentally stumbled into another universe. And fifteen, the same reasons we love good singing, just in reverse. So the examples that I provide for you today will be illustrations of those various aspects of the joys of bad singing. I can't wait to present some more of these artists to you, because I'm not sure what my listeners' tolerance for this kind of singing is. I've decided that I will merely include, to coin the name of a very famous decaffeinated coffee, the high points. Share a moment with Lauren Bacall. I'm enjoying life today more than I ever have, and I live it to the fullest. Maybe because I finally learned how to pick my pleasures, like coffee. I picked High Point, and I'll tell you why. It's flavor. Flavor that's full of life. I like that. Mmm, that wonderful aroma tells you that High Point's no ordinary coffee. And the flavor proves it. Mmm. 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 This is good. More than good. It's lively. It's lively. It's lively. It's lively. Did you know that High Point's decaffeinated? It's decaffeinated. It's decaffeinated. It's decaffeinated. It's decaffeinated. I'll tell you a secret. Caffeine sometimes makes me tense, and tension can show on your face. In my profession, you have to look your best. Look, 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 look. I set high standards for myself. I set high standards for my coffee. That's why High Point's number one with me. Ready, Mr. Call? Ready, Mr. Call? Ready, Mr. Call? I just had to take that little <laughs> that little byway with, to bring you my favorite commercial of all time, slightly edited for humorous effect. Okay, guys, let's jump in with our singers, shall we? The singer that we heard at the very top of the episode was Wing. What can I tell you about Wing? I discovered her when she was merely putting out albums 
because she had received accolades from the nursing homes where she had been performing before she actually became a worldwide phenomenon when she was featured on South Park. Because I'm being somewhat lazy today, I'm simply going to read off of the Wikipedia entry for Wing. Wing Han Zhang, popularly known simply as Wing, is a New Zealand singer of Chinese origin. She is known for her unique singing style, which has drawn comparisons to Florence Foster Jenkins and Mrs. Miller. And by the way, we will hear some Mrs. Miller later on. Having taken up singing as a hobby after immigrating to New Zealand, Wing gained an audience by entertaining patients at nursing homes and hospitals in and around Auckland. This prompted suggestions that she release a CD. The result was a debut titled Phantom of the Opera, featuring the title song from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, and a selection of other popular tunes to the accompaniment of a programmed electronic keyboard. Despite her unconventional style, the recording proved a success, leading to a number of subsequent releases of cover versions that eventually gained her an international audience. She guest starred on South Park in an episode named after her that was first broadcast in March 2005. On the DVD commentary for this episode, series creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone explain that she had to approve her cartoon likeness before allowing her music to be used. Parker also says he received a letter of thanks from her for the sales boost she enjoyed as a result of the episode. Wing toured the United States in the fall of 2009. She appeared at the Birdland Jazz Club in New York City and performed at the Raz Room in San Francisco. In 2015, Wing announced via her official website that she had retired from the music business. Much our loss. Now, I could play lots of Wing things for you, but one thing that I just love is that she was constantly seeking to improve herself. There was mention made of her first recording of Phantom of the Opera. A few releases later, she re-recorded it because she felt that she was able to better reach the high notes. What I love about it is that she actually couldn't and the second version is actually a little bit worse than the first one, just in terms of meeting all the notes. But the enthusiasm with which she sings is almost unmatched. I'm going to play you that second version of Phantom of the Opera and see what you think. Those who have seen your face your
hear those final shrieks as an almost existential cri de coeur. Am I being too pretentious about it? I don't know. Anyway, we'll turn to Wing at the very end of the episode as well, because I think she has the perfect sign-off for us. Now let's turn to some opera, shall we? I had mentioned three of the great opera divas that I think are matchless in this repertoire, and... Olive Middleton is one who actually had a legitimate career, evidently. The story was that Olive Middleton had sung roles at Covent Garden, including Pamina and Musetta, under Thomas Beecham in the 1920s. I don't know if that's true or not. What's fascinating about her is that she started an opera company in New York, and it was legendary. It was called La Puma Opera Company. The music director was the mother of the famous Metropolitan Opera pianist Alberta Mazzello, who those of us who listened to the Met broadcasts in the 1970s will remember Miss Mazzello at the Knabe. There's a guy named Donald Collop who has an amazing cache of recordings that he's offered for sale, many from the La Puma Opera Company, where Olive Middleton lavished her artistry, shall we say, in the 1960s. They're unspeakable performances. My favorite is Norma. I don't have a copy of it right now. Maybe if I do this again in years to come, I'll get my hands on the Norma and offer some of it for you. I find a little Olive Middleton goes a long way, but there are some pretty funny recordings that I have from an old LP that I dubbed off years and years ago. From that collection, I'm first going to offer you a little snippet of Pace Pace Mio Dio from La Forza del Destino. She brings, again, an unspeakable vocal quality. Once in a while, she actually hits notes more or less on pitch. But I want you to hear also the audience reaction, because this is what was so extraordinary about La Puma. All of the opera queens would go to these performances and scream at the top of their lungs to express their approval for their diva of choice.
The other thing that is so distinctive about La Puma performance is what constitutes the so-called orchestra. In my own day, back in the late 80s, when I was first arriving in New York, there was still an opera company called Amato Opera. And it was similar. It wasn't quite the bottom of the barrel that La Puma was, but there were some pretty scary performances that went on. I saw a trovatore, for instance, that had me screaming with laughter, but also the orchestra. I mean, they would just take whoever showed up and the piano would fill in the other parts. So you'd sometimes get a violin, you might have a trumpet, you might have a clarinet, and all the rest would be filled in by the rather dexterous and somewhat amazing pianist. That was actually a delight. That peculiar orchestral quality was comparable in performances of both La Puma and later Amato opera. There's another clip that I want to offer to you of Olive Middleton, and that is from the final scene of her Trovatore. There's an element of verismo that gets introduced into Verdi that's kind of amusing. As Leonora is dying, they sound like her final breaths. Also, it's wonderful to hear her with other singers who are, to varying degrees, also struggling to get through their music.
We're going to have a little change of pace now so you don't get tired of the operatic warblings. The next person we're going to hear is Mrs. Miller, who in the 1960s was briefly a peculiar popular phenomenon. It's hard to clarify exactly what she was about. She was a housewife in Pomona, California. She enjoyed making her own demo recordings. She used to go to the Capitol Records recording studio to make these demos, and an executive there became aware of her and decided that she might have a certain novelty saleability, shall we say. And he convinced her to start recording some of the popular hits of the day, which were eventually released as the album Mrs. Miller's Greatest Hits. As a result of this national exposure, she also appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and in at least one film. She also went on to record two more albums for Capitol Records, including Will Success Spoil Mrs. Miller and the one from which this selection comes, probably her least well-known Capitol release, The Country Soul of Mrs. Miller. The song we're about to hear is a portion of the track entitled There Goes My Everything, in which we get two different vibrato oscillations as Mrs. Miller sings in duet with herself. Truly an extraordinary phenomenon. I hear footsteps slowly walking As they gently walk across a lonely floor And a voice is softly saying Stay with pop music for one very short further selection. This is a number by The Shags. If you don't know who The Shags were, you're in for an experience. This is more of a tragic rather than a comic story. The father, who was evidently not a very nice person, bought his three daughters these instruments, which they had no idea how to play, and told them that they were going to form a band. So these girls did as they were commanded by the father and proceeded to make this album of songs that they had written themselves, playing on instruments that they had no idea how to play. A lot of people find this record to be possessed of a certain kind of mad genius. Certainly, the interest in the Shags has persisted to this day. In, I think it was 2011, David, my not-boyfriend, and I, well, at the time we were boyfriends, but we saw the show together in the New York Musical Festival, or NIMF, as it was called, about the Shags. 
the most interesting bit of that musical, which I thought was actually fairly effective, was this moment when the three young women were in the recording studio. And we heard for a very few moments the sound that they thought that they were making, as opposed to the sound that the recording engineer was hearing. This emphasizes the idea that I was talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, where people are creating their own world. There's a certain mad brilliance to what they're doing. I think you can hear that in this song that's called My Pal Foot Foot. The whole album is worth listening to. It's been reissued along with some additional tracks. They're a phenomenon. What can I say? Give it a listen. My pal's name is Footfoot, Foot. I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, Footfoot, Foot, don't live here no more. My pal Footfoot, Foot. Foot. always likes to roam. My pal Footfoot, Foot. Foot. now he has no home. Where will Footfoot go? What will Footfoot do? Oh, Foot, Foot, I wish I could find you. music and even though our operatic divas are singing traditional repertoire rather than their own creations i still think that they are also representatives of outsider music men also do this and i'm going to offer two operatic clips for you the first is this very strange dutch tenor named sirach von Bodegrafen. I first became aware of him from the webpage that an opera lover named Mike Richter used to keep. I believe he was a software engineer who had to take uh, a medical retirement and in his retirement then produced this webpage, which was really an extraordinary collection of incredible 
music. He also produced probably more than a dozen CD-ROMs featuring really extraordinary operatic performances and repertoire. He was a great guy. He once featured me on one of his weekly pages, which was a, well, it was flattering for me anyway. So Mike featured, uh, might have been for April Fool's Day as well, this tenor named Sirach von Bodegrafen, who sent this self-accompanied audition recording. I believe it was to the Zurich Opera. I was surprised to find that he had actually put out, probably some years before that, a record of hymns accompanied by organ. What's so interesting about it is that he just sounds like your average run-of-the-mill not very vocally well-endowed singer. He sounds kind of like the Danish tenor Axel Schütz on a particularly bad day. There are other, many of them leader singers and art song singers, who didn't have the most beautiful voices, but of course lent extraordinary artistry to their performances. I'm just going to play just a few brief seconds of this recording with Sirach von Bodegrafen, and then we're going to listen to one of the tracks that he included in that audition tape, and you'll hear that something extremely strange happened in the interim. think that that description of Axel Schütz on a really bad day kind of holds. Now, let's listen to his later forays into the dramatic tenor repertoire.
In case you didn't recognize that, that was actually Nessun Dorma or some semblance thereof. Now, I don't think this next singer is known. I believe we will have to simply call him anonymous, but he is an extraordinary operetta tenor. He's going to out Tauber, Richard Tauber, in that very famous Tauber lied, Dein ist mein ganzes Herz, from Das Land des Lächelns. That means the land of smiles, and I think that we will be doing quite a bit of smiling. I know I do. I, I, I just start laughing uproariously when listening to this one. It is just not to be believed. particularly love about that recording is how desperately unmusical that singer is. I can only imagine the directions that he was given by his vocal coach, for instance, in that B section, Wohin ich immer gehe. Try for something more conversational, a little more off the cuff. So he enters ahead of the beat and he just, woo, 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 and just starts spouting it out so fast, trying to be casual and conversational. It's just too outrageous. Now, I'm going to offer a complete contrast, a great operatic artist. I don't think there's any disputing this. I present to you the queen of song, Marie Lynn, your singing hostess from the golden treasury of song. As the music in the last act denotes, 
Violetta is dying. Alfredo's father has told her that she must give him up as the scandal is ruining Alfredo's sister's chance for an advantageous marriage. Violetta gives in and sends Alfredo away. Not knowing why, he becomes enraged and denounces her as a harlot. His father hears that she is dying and tells Alfredo the truth. He dispatches a letter to her saying that Alfredo and he are on their way to her and that all will be well. Violetta has read the letter over many times and now she feels that they will not make it in time. Too late, too late. The doctor says she doesn't have much longer. Shall I placidly go to my death? What else is there left for me? All that I had, all that I wanted, all that I lived for is empty. Comforts, money, jewels mean nothing. They can't breathe life into my dying body. I thought my perfect love for Alfredo would strengthen me and give me the stamina to live. But no more, no more. It's too late. All is over for me. No more flowers, just death. From the third act, we bring you the prelude followed by the letter scene and the Adio del Passato. The joy that I have gotten over the years from this woman, I can't even tell you. She was the hostess of a cable access program called The Golden Treasury of Song. I was recently given a cache of fascinating documents by my dear friend Thomas Bagwell, who received them in the effects of a dear friend of his who had died. Thomas told me it would be all right to share the contents of those documents with you. Among these effects were two photographs from Marie Lynn and a letter that he had sent to her as well as her typed response. So I'm going to share those things with you and then I'm going to have three excerpts from her amazing cable access program, The Golden Treasury of Song. Giorgio Germont. Thank you. 
there's not been one single Violetta since Claudia Muzio in her famous recording of that scene who captures the essence of Violetta the way that Marie Lynn does. Now, I'm sure you were admiring the accompaniment that Marie Lynn obtains from, as they are referred to on every program, the Howard Salat Quartet Local 802. There are just too many marvelous things in this program, but that is really one of my very favorites. Since we just heard a letter, let me share the letters that Thomas's friend sent and received from the very Marie Lynn, whose brilliant interpretation of Violetta we just heard. Here's the letter that was sent to Marie Lynn. Marie Lynn Sosman, the Golden Treasury of Song, blah, blah, blah. Dear Madam Sosman, about one month ago, one of the folks here at the office discovered your wonderful program, The Golden Treasury of Song, on Channel C. Since all of us love good singing, and since most of us live in areas that don't receive your program, we were all very pleased when our boss, Charlie, said that we could watch the program on Monday nights at the office. So every night, the entire staff stays after work, relaxes, and has a great time from 6 until 6.30 watching Channel C. None of us can think of a better way to begin each week. Each week, our anticipation grows greater in waiting for the next installment. The artistry presented on these broadcasts is unique in our experience with cable TV. The amount of research that goes into each program to say nothing of the rehearsal required must be staggering. Your versatility, as well as that of the Howard Salat Quartet, is astounding. You satisfy on so many levels. On the last program, you mentioned that you were sending out pictures on request. Would it be possible to have one autograph to the group, Charlie's Angels, for us to keep here at the office? If your supply permits, we would love to have photos on an individual basis, too. Of course, we would be happy to cover any reasonable costs in supplying the extra photos. The names are... I'm redacting the names at Thomas's request. Thank you so much for your consideration. We look forward to receiving the pictures, but most of all, we look forward to the next installment of the Golden Treasury of Song. Sincerely yours, Charlie's Angels. And here is... Madam Marie Lynn's gracious response. It's dated August 13th, 1984. Dear Charlie's Angels, thank you so much for your lovely letter of praise. Both Maestro Salat and I were very pleased to hear from you. Whether you realize it or not, you have the makings of a fan club. We have three other fan clubs in different parts of this Big Apple. One on Fort Washington Avenue, a sewing circle, run by dear Mildred. We have one in Riverdale who meet at the Y and are into macrame. That, as the orchestra says, is the all-tied-up-in-knots group, headed by charming Helen Levy. Last but not least is the Champagne Hour at the Ansonia, made up, believe it or not, of the gang from La Cage. Some of them still keep in touch from the coast and old Nashville. I'm known down there as the Loretta Lynn of Grand Opera. That's L-Y-N, mind you, as in Marie Lynn. That group is headed by Coy Covington. Beautifully named. That's my editorialization. I am sending you some material and one composite each for each angel. The LP I just completed for Phillips, the artistry of Marie Lynn, will be out soon. Anyway, I will have some copies which I send to my fan clubs as it premieres in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Phillips previews everything abroad first. 
Then it goes on sale here at the local stores, but my fan clubs will have it first and for free. Thanks again for all of the praise. You know, an artist can never get enough. Let us hear from you, and we hope you like the material. Yours in music and the finer things, Marie Lynn. Now I'm going to offer two further selections from Madame Marie Lynn and the Golden Treasury of Song, accompanied, of course, by the Howard Salat Quartet, Local 802. The first is the secular one, and that is Summertime. I'll let Marie Lynn do the introduction herself. The first truly American opera was written by George Gershwin with a libretto by Debose Haywood. This was based on a play, Porgy, written by Haywood and his wife Dorothy for the Theatre Guild. From it, we will do the haunting Summertime. Summer time. 
program Hosanna at Eventide, which is perhaps her greatest artistic accomplishment among the many episodes of the Golden Treasury of Song. We hear How Great Thou Art in her very own personalized vocal stylings. final note that you just heard might have been the greatest single note ever to emerge from the throat of Madame Marie Lynn, your singing hostess. Cotton Mosquito number two, spoken, played, and sung by Melinda Jackson Parker, with a portion of the famous Radamano prelude in C-sharp minor. He really was a genius. Radamanov died heartbroken because he had no money to publish his compositions. His brother would have published them, but was also bankrupt. Radamanov was never buried when he died, but was thrown out in the pompous field. But his music lives forever. Centuries later, his music did not fade away and is now being played throughout the world. Among his great compositions, his prelude in C-sharp minor is my favorite selection. 
Yes, my dear listeners, I can just hear you asking, what was that? That was Congresswoman Melinda Jackson Parker, who identified herself right at the beginning of the clip. That was from her album, Tubman Good Time Songs of Liberia. Melinda Jackson Parker was indeed a congresswoman in Liberia in the 50s. And from then, she went on to make this wonderful record, among other things. I think she has a message here that we might take to heart, not to avoid mosquitoes necessarily, but to just avoid each other. I could go on a greater length about Melinda Jackson Parker, who clearly shows among her musical influences the great Nina Simone, the way that she bangs away at the keyboard like that, and also Rana Mananoff, of course, who clearly is one of her favorite uh, composers, about whom she spins quite the fanciful yarn, completely spun out of the thread of fake news, by the way. That was just a portion of Cousin Mosquito Number 2 on the Tubman Good Time Songs of Liberia album. My personal favorite selection on that album is Cousin Mosquito Number 1, which we are about to hear, because you gotta hear it. And in case you wondered if it were possible to sing the word cousin 204 times over the course of a song, you were about to discover that yes, it is possible, and yes, it can be done with great aplomb and, in fact, a kind of crazed brilliance. Here she is, Congresswoman Melinda Jackson Parker. My friends, lend me your ears. I have a story to tell you about Mr. Mosquito. Now when you're in the tropics, beware of that tiny insect called Mosquito. is cousin to him. Take no chances with brother Mosquito. He has a sting of death. When he sings a solo, no one likes to hear. But before he sting, stings, he sings. And that sting is a sting of death. Yes, it's a sting of death. So beware. Beware of cousin of mosquito. Whenever you hear cousin mosquito. solo. Take no chances 
for causing mosquito saps all of your blood and send you to your grave before time. So take my advice. Avoid cousin mosquito and his solo. Also, in the way that the good congresswoman is able to spin out a coda ad nauseum, she also shows the influence of Beethoven himself. Wouldn't you agree? Now, as we wind down today, I need to offer my very favorite of these artists. That is the Portuguese soprano Natalia de Andrade. She evidently is quite well known in her native Portugal. Unfortunately, I don't speak Portuguese, so I have not been able to make much sense out of the documentaries that are available on YouTube. But if anyone is fluent in Portuguese or even conversant in Portuguese, I do recommend that you take a look at those. Gosh, I'm really running out of time, but I have to make sure that I put at least a couple things in here. I would say her two greatest roles are probably her most girlish assumptions, those being Manon and Gilda. Now, I don't know if you guys are going to have the tolerance for her entire performance of Caro Nome. I do have to put some portions of that in there. I mean, it's a list of all of the things that are just so brilliant. I mean, she feels this stuff so profoundly. And here she is, this elderly woman at this point in her life, channeling a young girl in both of these parts, which I find in a really strange way so deeply moving. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm going to offer her doing the recitative before the gavotte of Manon, kind of like Callas on her second French opera heroines album, simply did that recitative and not the gavotte itself. Although Natalia de Andrade does do the gavotte, I find her assumption of the recitative, the je marche sur tous les chemins, more than enough. Give a listen, see what I mean. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Finally, here is her Gilda of Desperation. Girlish, poignant, desperate in more than one way, and not just vocally, but also feeling the pangs of first love.
so many things to admire about that performance. For one, her refusal to be held in by rhythms, pitches, the notes that Verdi wrote. I mean, really, there's so much more inside of her that needs to come out. Why bother doing what he wrote? It's getting in the way of her interpretation. Not to mention that glottal stop from hell in the final cadenza. It's like she was listening to Renata Scotto and was like, oh, please, girl, you call that a glottal stop? Wait until you hear what I have to offer. I think it's a wonderful way to see you off for the end of this episode. I hope that none of you were offended by the fact that I thought that we needed a little bit of laughter today, but I'm going to let Wing have the final word because she's right. Don't worry if it's not good enough for anyone else to hear. My friends, just sing, sing a song and keep that song in your heart. Sing, sing a song, sing out loud, sing out song, sing everything about Bye-bye.